It's good to be with you this morning. If you are visiting with us, my name is Paul, and I am also one of the elders here. I am the teaching elder, and so I would love to meet you. I usually, after the service, am standing right out here in the hallway here in uh, this building, and you can't actually get past me. So I, I make a point of uh, shaking your hand and, and at least getting your name, but I would love to meet you if you are visiting with us. And as Jeremy uh, said, we are moving. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I, am, I am a little tired of posts blocking people. See, I, I can kind of see you back there a little bit, and the sound, the ice machine, and all that. I, I'm just really excited about moving into our uh, more permanent location. We've signed a six-year lease, and so we will be there at 2818 North Sullivan, and uh, we look forward to that here in a couple of weeks. As Jeremy also said, we, we want to have a time of prayer, a dedication, commitment of that space to the Lord on April 1st. And so hopefully you can be uh, with us there. And there will be some moving to do, but the primary purpose of gathering together on April 1st would be to pray together and commit that space to the Lord. Uh, it is His work we seek to do. It is His name that we seek to exalt. And so we want, want to pray and uh, commit that space to the Lord before we move anything in. Uh, we are in a big text this morning. We've decided to take two chapters and look at two whole chapters together. Acts 13 and 14. I'm not going to read all two chapters or all that's in both chapters. We're going to walk through the chapters together. And uh, this is purposeful, by the way. Sometimes when we go through a book of the Bible, we can, we can get so focused in on uh, you know, the trees that we neglect the forest, right? We can get so focused in on the details. Sometimes we think, well, that, that's deep study. We want to study deeply. But what we end up doing is we lose sight of what's happening in the passage and in the text. And so we, we've taken off these two chapters because we want you to see the big picture. We want you to see what's happening here in Acts chapter 13 and 14. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to read chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, and then I'm going to read chapter 14 at the very end, verse 24 through 28. Okay, so Acts 13, 1 through 3, and Acts 14, 24 through 28. So beginning there in Acts chapter 13, Verse number one. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so beginning the journey there. Now turn over to Acts 14. This is the conclusion. Acts 14, verse 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia, 
and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Acts chapter 13 and 14 is an important section here in the book of Acts. The good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of God's rule being established upon the earth in the name of his son, King. This is the good news, by the way. The good news is the good news of God's kingdom, God's kingdom rule coming to earth. Isn't that good news? God is coming, his kingdom is coming, his rule is coming upon the earth, and is being established in the name of his son, King Jesus. And this good news is going forth into the nations. Acts 13 and 14 details for us what is often referred to as the first missionary journey of Paul. Signals to the reader that God's mission to take his kingdom message to the Gentile nations will now be the focus. Jerusalem has been the focus up to this point. Then Antioch, the church at Antioch, and now Antioch is sending out missionaries to take the good news to the nations. We see the point. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the point of chapter 13 and 14 right, right here off the bat. Okay, The point of chapter 13 and 14 is that the Gentile nations, the Gentile nations are receiving the good news of King Jesus and the Jewish people the Jewish people are opposing that message. The Gentile nations are receiving the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus, and the Jewish people are opposing that message. That's what takes place in chapter 13 and 14. We see that signaled, we see that communicated to us. First of all, Saul here, begins to be called Paul. You'll see that in chapter 13. Saul is now going to be referenced as Paul. Saul is his Jewish name. Saul is his Jewish name. Is Paul is his Greek name. Because he will now take the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. We also see this communicated to us by Paul's sermon. This is Paul's first sermon. In chapter 13, we see Paul, the apostle's first sermon recorded for us. And the theme 
of this sermon becomes the theme of these two chapters. And in this sermon, the Jewish people reject the preaching of the good news. And in chapter 13, verse 44 through 52, which is the key passage of this journey, this key passage of this missionary trip, Paul says to the Jewish people, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And it is necessary for us to preach the gospel first to you, right? You are the people of promise, but you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, and we now will go to the Gentiles. We also see this communicated in chapter 14, verse 27, which we just read. Paul says, Paul and Barnabas report back to the church at Antioch, and they say, a door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles. The Gentile nations are now coming into the kingdom. And God's people, the people that will populate his kingdom, will by and large come from the Gentile nations. The last piece of evidence we see for this is that Acts 15. Acts 15 comes as a result of this missionary work essentially, in chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 15 is where we will see the Jerusalem Council, where the question of Gentiles, can Gentiles come into the kingdom as Gentiles? That question will be decided, or better yet, it will be recognized officially that the kingdom of God, established on earth in the name of his son king, will not be a Jewish kingdom. It will be a kingdom for all people, made up of people from all nations. And this reality is staggering for the biblical storyline. So what I want to do, I want to walk through this missionary journey. What I want you to do right now is I want you to turn the back of your Bibles and find a map. Hopefully you have a map if you have a hard copy of the scriptures. See the maps back here, they look like this, right? One of my kids, one of my kids recently was like, are the maps in the back of the Bible to tell you how to get to heaven? <laughs> are, they, are these maps to heaven? Well, not quite, not quite. But they are valuable. Maybe you've looked at them before. There should be a map back there that talks about Paul's missionary journeys. Maybe it has the first one and then the second one and the third one. Maybe the fourth one as well. But I want you, I want you to look at that map very quickly. Paul's journey, Paul and Barnabas, their journey, they leave Antioch and they sail over to the island of Cyprus. That's their first stop. They stop there and go across the entire island preaching the gospel. The good news of God's kingdom coming to earth in the name of his son king. And they end in a town called Paphos. There they're going to be opposed. We're going to look at that in a second. And the gospel will be received as well. 
They leave Cyprus and then travel up to Asia Minor, where they travel through another region called Pamphylia, or Lycia maybe in your map. And they travel up to a town also called Antioch. They left a place called Antioch, but now there's another place called Antioch, named after Antiochus. And this is called Pisidian Antioch, in the region of Pisidia. Now, Pisidian Antioch is going to be the place where his key speech is delivered. Very significant moment in this journey. Pisidian Antioch. They leave Pisidian Antioch after they kick the dust off their feet. And they travel to Iconium, where they are received there. The gospel is received, but it is also opposed. They leave Iconium, go to Lystra. Now, Lystra is in Lyconia, a region of Lyconia. But both Pisidia and Lyconia are in a region called Galatia. Okay, so maybe that sounds familiar to you. Galatia is the place where he will later on write letters. The the churches in Galatia. These are some of those churches that are established. So he leaves Iconium, goes to Lystra. Lystra is where he preaches to an entirely Gentile audience, a Greek audience. There they are mistaken for gods. And they have to run out and beg the people not to make sacrifices to them. It is also at Lystra where Paul will be stoned and left for dead by the people. Then they travel to Derby, where they preach the gospel and many receive the gospel there. And then before they were, as they're going home, instead of going east, if you're looking at your map, you notice that you can go east and get back to Antioch in Syria. You can go east by land and get back to Antioch. But they decide not to do that. They go back and, and trace their steps back where they came from. Back to Lystra, where he'd just been stoned and left for dead. Back to Iconium. Back to Pisidian Antioch. Back to these places. And what do they do there? They strengthen the churches. They encourage the churches. They exhort the churches as they make their way back to Antioch in Syria. Okay, so you you just got the summary view of the trip. And that map kind of details that trip for you. Well, we want to walk through the passage. Some of you are glazing over already. All right, enough geography. Let's get to what the Bible is actually saying. Some of you are like, I love geography. I wish you would just do the geography the entire time. Well, we're not here for a geography lesson. We want to look at what the scripture is saying. The church in Antioch in Syria is a healthy church. You see that described for you in verse 1 through 3. They are worshiping the Lord. They are fasting. And they are pregnant. They are full of men who are gifted for teaching and for preaching. It's there that the Holy Spirit says to the leaders there of the church, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. There's a particular work that the Holy Spirit has for Paul and Barnabas. Now remember, Jerusalem, the first church, 
the first church where the, the first believers were gathered, they were gathering there, they were a healthy church, they were believing the gospel, they were encouraging one another, they were sharing all things in common, but they weren't going anywhere. God brought persecution upon that church so that they would be scattered. And as they were scattered, they preached the word. The church in Antioch is the fruit of that persecution, of that scattering. And now the gospel must go forth again. This time it will not happen through persecution. It will happen by the commissioning of the Holy Spirit. He says, set apart from me, Paul and Barnabas. I have a work that I want them to do. This creates a trajectory for us. The Jerusalem church and the persecution there is what starts other churches. And now Antioch will send forth. And the expectation should be that there will be more churches started, more gathering of God's people. The Holy Spirit interrupts a thriving worship scene there in Antioch to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the task. And this is what we should have expected. Remember Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, after the conversion of Saul, verse 15, the Lord said, Go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The mission that these men are being sent on as I've already said, is often referred to as Paul's first missionary journey, but it is not, that's, that, that, that name is a little bit uh, deceiving because this is not his first ministry. In fact, Paul, by this time, has been ministering for over 10 years. After his conversion, he ministers in Damascus for a couple of years. He ministers in Jerusalem briefly. He even travels down. Galatians 1 tells us he travels down to Arabia. Think the, the desert region of the Sinai Peninsula. He travels there and preaches and teaches. He preaches in Syria where Antioch is. And in Cilicia, that region near his hometown of Tarsus. But this is the first time that he is set apart for this purpose by a local church and he will take Barnabas with him and they set off after they are acknowledged or after they are set apart by the Holy Spirit the men there lay hands on them fasting and praying I thought that was interesting they fast and pray after after they've been after they've been set apart they fast and pray and lay their hands on them and send them off their first stop is Cyprus. There is Cyprus. They travel across the island preaching the good news of God's kingdom established in his son king. And they come to the city of Paphos. Now I want, I want to draw your attention here to what happens in Paphos. First, there is a man there by the name of Bar-Jesus. And look at the description given to him in verse 6. He's a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Sergius Paulus, 
He's a political figure. He's a man of authority and power. And he wants to hear the word of the gospel. But Elymas, the magician, this is also his name, opposed them. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And I want you to look at what Saul says to him. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, verse 10, this is to Elymas, the magician, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Does that not call to remembrance Saul's own conversion, where he is blinded by the light? You see, here Saul is meeting himself in a way. Saul is meeting himself Now he, instead of being an opposer of the gospel, as Saul was, he carries the authority of King Jesus with him. The gospel will not be opposed. The gospel will not be thwarted. It will not fail. And we see that in verse 12. In verse 12, the proconsul, he's watching this. The proconsul is watching this exchange between Elymas and the apostle Paul. He's watching this. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. But look at, the, look at the last part of verse 12. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Look what he receives. He sees what happens with Elymas and Saul, but that's not what convinces him. He is astonished at the teaching, the preaching of the word of the Lord. So we see here on Cyprus, two really important kind of templates for us. The gospel is opposed, as it always will be. The messenger, the one who carries the word of the Lord, he goes in Christ's authority, and the gospel, because of that, will not fail. There will be those who believe the word. Paul and Barnabas leave Paphos. They leave Cyprus. And they go up to Perga in Pamphylia. This is where John Mark, their companion, their associate, leaves. And we'll return to him in a couple of chapters. They leave Perga and they go to Antioch in Pisidia. There on the Sabbath day, they go into the synagogue and they begin to proclaim the message to the Jewish people. He recounts the history of the Jewish people. This is a sermon, by the way, that parallels what Peter's sermon was in Acts chapter 2 and 3, and also Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 6 and 7. This is seen as a parallel sermon to theirs. Here, he recounts for these Jewish audience the history, the fact that Jesus' coming should have been expected, that John proclaimed his coming and repentance for all the people of Israel to prepare for the king's coming. And then verse 26, he appeals to them. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, look at verse 26, and those among you who fear God, 
To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them, because they did not understand them, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And they, they, though they found him guilt, not guilty or worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So he says, these, these, these people, though they read the scriptures, they didn't understand the scriptures. And the scriptures were read to them weekly in the, the synagogue, but they refused to understand and in turn actually fulfilled the very scriptures that they, that they did not understand. Verse number 30, after they had taken him from the tree and laid him in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, verse 37, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now I want you to take notice of that word freed there in verse 39. It happens twice. By him everyone who believes is freed. That word is the word for justified. It's the same word for justified. Here, Paul, for the first time, preaches not just forgiveness of sin, not just the cleansing of sin, but also justification apart from the law. Do you remember what justification is? Okay, justification sounds like a fancy term, but justification simply means to be declared righteous. So here, Paul preaches to the Jewish people, that Jesus and his death and resurrection was a fulfillment of the promises made to them and to their fathers. That his resurrection proved who he was and that Jesus offers to them forgiveness of sin and freedom or justification, righteousness. He offers them righteousness apart from the law. They can be forgiven and they can be declared righteous. Beware, verse 40, therefore, he says, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, be careful what you do with this message. Don't reject it. Don't spurn it. Don't let the, the scriptures be fulfilled in you that way. As they went out, they begged to hear more. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, many who were devout, many who were devoted to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, and they encouraged and urged them to 
continue in the grace of God. But verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So look at this. Look at this. He preaches first to the synagogue, first to the Jewish people. He recounts their history. He says this Jesus who is given over and who died and who raised, he is the fulfillment of what you were expecting. He has come offering forgiveness of sin and justification, freedom from the law, the bondage that comes through the law. And now you must receive him. They want to hear more, but on the next Sabbath... They gather, and who is gathered with them? Almost the entire city comes out to hear this proclamation. And what is the reception, or what is the response of the Jews? Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now look at what happens with the Gentiles when they hear this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We're going to return to that phrase in just a moment. We're going to return it. I'm going to give you a summary of all this here in just a moment. But that phrase is very important. The Jews have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. But the Gentiles, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them. And with Tyconium, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they leave after preaching the gospel to the Jews. The Jews reject it. The Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom. That is the good news. And that is when the Jews drive them out, and send them off on their way. They come to Iconium, and there they preach the good news again, and many believe, but I want you to see verse 2, verse 2 there in chapter 14, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and, what does it say there? Poisoned their minds. Poisoned their minds. One translator Translates it, they led their souls to evil. The Jewish people are leading the Gentiles to evil by causing them, by causing them to stumble at the hearing of the good news. And the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now they, they leave and go to Lystra. Lystra is where they, like I said just a minute ago, they preach to the Gentile audience, a purely Gentile audience for the very first time. And this is, this is interesting what happens. They come into the city and there is a lame man, someone who can't walk, this parallels Peter in Acts chapter 3 when he heals a lame man there at the, the beautiful gate of the temple. He comes in, Paul comes in, and seeing the man, and seeing that he has the faith to believe, he tells the man to stand up, and he's healed. And upon that miracle, 
the people there of the city, they think that the gods have come and visited them. Zeus and Hermes, they believe, have come to visit them. And they, they think Barnabas is Zeus. And they think Paul is Hermes. You say, well, why is that? Because, because Hermes is the one who speaks and interprets for Zeus. Barnabas is Zeus. Paul is the one speaking and interpreting. So where we get our term hermeneutics from, okay, Hermes. He's the interpreter. And so they think, Paul has come. He's interpreting for Zeus. The gods have come. And they prepare to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But look at, look at uh, the response of the apostles there. When the apostles, verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Here, I think this is, this is staggering here what happens. They come into this city and they are thought to be gods. They are thought to be gods because of the power and the the signs that they do. This would be such an opportunity, wouldn't it? They think we're Zeus and Hermes. We, they'll believe anything we tell them. All we have to do is kind of receive what they're saying and we can tell them what we want to tell them and they'll receive it. They'll, they'll believe. But Paul and Barnabas rush out. And they say, no, you can't do this. You cannot sacrifice to us. We are men just like you are. He says, in fact, we've come to give you good news so that you can turn from serving vain idols, turn from serving these gods to serve the living God, the living God that you know exists because he's been testifying to himself for all these years by the rains, by how he provides for you, by general revelation, you all know that this God is true. He's the living God. And he sent us to you to save you from your false religion. No syncretism for Paul and Barnabas. No using or contextualizing in such a way as to hinder or to dilute the gospel. They're preaching the good news, both to Jew and to Gentile. But there at Lystra, the Jews, this is, this is again, amazing, just the, the hardness of heart. The Jews came from Antioch and from Iconium. So this journey that they're on, the Jews follow them from Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium. They come in here to Lystra, and they persuade the crowds to stone Paul and to drag him out of the city And they do that. They stone him, drag him out of the city, and suppose that he is dead. Verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and into the city. He he gets up, and he goes back into the very city where they just stoned him 
to death or supposedly to death. And on the next day, he goes with Barnabas to Derby. Derby's about 35 miles away. Would you like to walk 35 miles after you've been almost stoned to death? He gets up and he walks 35 miles to Derby the next day, continuing to preach the gospel. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so many people received the good news, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch where all these people are opposing them. But what do they do there? They strengthen the souls. Look at verse 20, look at verse 22 in chapter 14. They strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they returned to Antioch. And in Antioch, they tell the church that had commissioned them what took place and what happened, and they give the summary statement, a door of of faith has been opened to the Gentiles, and they remain no little time with the disciples. Well, are you tired? You just went on a two-year journey in 20 minutes. And it's an amazing story. I want to give you four takeaways for us this morning. Four takeaways for us from this missionary journey. And I I, I want to frame it this way for us. Next week, uh, we have a missionary coming to speak to us next Sunday morning. And he's not, he's not on the field yet. He's going to the field. And we've told him, hey, we, we're not going to promise you any support. We're not going to promise you any money or anything. But we want to hear what God is leading you to do. We want to hear what mission and what work the Lord has set you apart to accomplish. So he'll come next week and he'll preach for us. Um, and we're excited about that. Because we want to be a church involved in sending out others. Now, I'll just be real frank with you. Um, I would rather send one of you. I would rather take the monies that our church are gathering and collecting and send one of you to go. And some of you even might be thinking about going. Some of you might be thinking about launching out from your church home to take the gospel to other places. And I, I am excited about that prospect. But we, we need to support missionaries even now. And so right now we're thinking about who can we send? Who do we know? Who's going to preach the gospel? And who can we be excited about sending? We're thinking about that as elders and as a church. And so we're excited about having a missionary come in next week and talk to us about that. And I want to frame this around, around that mission that we have to send out those who will proclaim the gospel. As a church, we we need to be aware of what this will cost. We need to be aware of what this will require. Uh, We need to be aware of of what uh, gospel ministry and gospel proclamation will involve. And, And yes, to send missionaries out, to send his servants out to proclaim the gospel in far uh, regions, but also what does it look like for us to be proclaimers of the gospel here? And, and can, I, can I just ask you that question? It's good to ask that question every once in a while. When is the last time you opened your mouth and actually proclaimed the gospel to someone? When was the last time you opened your mouth and actually proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ as King, 
who has come and died and risen again and has come in offering forgiveness and justification for sin, when is the last time you opened your mouth and actually proclaimed the gospel to someone? This is something all of us are responsible for, not just those that we send to farther regions. So four, four truths here for us as we shape our understanding of missions and gospel proclamation. Number one, the proclamation of the gospel, we see here in chapter 13 and 14 of Acts, the, the proclamation of the gospel is the fruit of a healthy church. It is the fruit of a healthy church. The church, the gathering of God's people, is the center of God's activity in carrying out his mission. He is bringing the good news of his kingdom in the name of his son king. He's bringing that to the globe. And the church is at the center of that mission. I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but the apostle Paul is accountable to a local church. You see that there? He is commissioned by a local church. It, it would have been easy enough, wouldn't it, for the Holy Spirit just to say to Paul and Barnabas, hey guys, I want you to go and I want you to take the gospel out and for Paul and Barnabas just to pick up and leave. But that's not what happens. The Holy Spirit says, I have set apart Paul and Barnabas for this work. And who does he tell that to? He tells that to the leaders of the church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch, the leaders there at the church at Antioch, they're the ones who, after prayer and fasting, lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them out. And it's to that church that Paul and Barnabas come back and report of the work that they had fulfilled, that they had been commissioned to fulfill. The local church is involved. It's not, it's not someone's solo project. It is a church that is given the responsibility of laying their hands on these men, sending them out, and then receiving the report. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, is the fruit of a healthy church. And I want to give you three, three ways that a local church is necessary for the proclamation of the gospel. Number one, a local church is necessary because... A church protects the content of the message that is being proclaimed. A church, a church, a gathered church, protects the content of the message that is being proclaimed. I think often when we talk about evangelism and we talk about gospel proclamation, I think that the, the conversation often revolves around how. Like the how-to, the practical steps. How, how do I proclaim my uh, faith? How do I testify to my faith? I need the how-to, I need the practical steps. There's a lot of focus given to the how-to and the what or the substance, the content of the gospel is taken for granted. A church is necessary to protect the content of the gospel. If I sat down with you today, and asked you, and I've done that with many of you, we've done membership interviews, and this is why we have membership interviews. If I sat down with you and said, 
hey, I'm, I'm your friend, and I come to you, and I say, how can I have a relationship with God? How would you explain that to me? How would you explain that to me? I've watched as I've asked that question, and people go, uh, uh, well, and they, I'm not asking for, you know, it's not a trick question. How, how, how can you tell someone that they can be right with God? How does that work? What does that look like? What's the content of the gospel? I think, I think sometimes we are hesitant to proclaim the gospel because we're fuzzy about the gospel ourselves. We're, we're hesitant because we're not really sure. I don't, I don't want to do it wrong. I don't want to say the wrong thing. The content of the gospel is protected by a local church. It's so important. And, and again, this is why we take membership seriously. Because we're not, we're not just here to get a bunch of people gathered together. We want to gather a bunch of people together who understand and have received the gospel. Articulating the gospel, understanding the gospel is so important. What is the gospel? As I've said over and over again, I'm hoping that it burns into your brain. The gospel is the good news. It is good news of what? The good news of God's kingdom rule coming to earth. God's kingdom coming to earth, established in the name of his son, king. That's the gospel. And what did his son, king, do to establish this kingdom? He, the king, has come and has died himself for sin. You see, if he comes to establish a kingdom upon earth, who will he find on earth that can inhabit his kingdom? Who is righteous enough to come into his kingdom? This is what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of God. And by that statement, what he does is he, he, he disqualifies everybody from entering the kingdom. Did you know you can't enter the kingdom on your own? Did you know that? You can't enter the kingdom. You're not worthy of it. So what has to happen? Jesus, the king, comes and he himself takes sin and dies for sin. He pays the penalty for sin. He pays the penalty, which is death, for sin. The king has come. The king has died himself for our sin. And our sin could not contain him. I say to people all the time, what else did Jesus do? Jesus died for you, but what else did he do in, the, in those interviews? And people always go, uh, I, I, what else did he do? I don't, don't, well, did he stay dead? Did he stay dead? No, he didn't. He rose again. If he can't, if he can't save himself from your sin, how can he save you from your sin? If he can't save himself from your sin, how can he save you? But he did. He did. He died for your sin. He died for sin. And then he rose again. And rising again, he defeated your sin. And he punched a way through. He made a way through death and sin. And he leads the way. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, the king, has come and he has taken sin upon himself. He has died himself for sin. And he has been raised again by God be declared the son of God, the son of David, the king, by his resurrection. 
And in his resurrection now, as he has died for sin and raised again from sin, been raised again from sin and death, he now offers forgiveness from sin. Think about that. Total forgiveness from sin. Think of all the sins that you've committed. Think of all the sins that you're guilty of. He offers forgiveness from sin. Total forgiveness by his death and resurrection. But not only that, you see, forgiveness for sin isn't enough. That doesn't make you righteous. That can take away your unrighteousness, but it cannot actually make you righteous. Here we see Paul preaching to the Jews the first time. He says he is offering forgiveness of sin and he is offering righteousness that doesn't come by keeping the law. Did you know you can't be made righteous by doing good things? You're not a good person. Doesn't matter how many good things you do, you cannot be acceptable to God. Jesus, the king, has taken sin upon himself and died for sin. He has been raised again and defeated sin and death, and he offers forgiveness from sin, and he offers his own righteousness for you. You can be made righteous and freed from the law. This is the good news. What do we call people to do? Do we call people just to add Jesus to their list of things they believe? Do we, do we encourage people to just add Jesus into their life? Do we allow syncretism? Do we accept their devotion as something valuable in and of itself? You know, we think devotion is good, and, and devotion in itself is honorable, isn't it? To be devoted to something. We like that word. But did you know, if you're devoted to someone other than Jesus, that is damnable. Devotion to anything but Jesus Christ will send you to hell. And that message is offensive. Jesus, as the king, has come. He has taken sin upon himself. He has died and been raised again. He offers forgiveness. He offers righteousness so that you can be made right with God. But the call to receive the gospel is a call to repentance. Turn from your religion. Turn from your good deeds. Turn from yourself. Turn from your sin. And receive Jesus and Jesus alone as your only hope of salvation. That's the gospel. Receive him. Repent. And receive him by faith as your king. Believe in his work as your only means of salvation. That's the gospel. And that message has to be protected. Why? Because the temptation, the temptation is to water it down, to dilute it. We need local churches, strong, healthy churches that will protect the message, the content of that gospel. We also need healthy churches to protect the character and to verify the calling of those sent. How many conversations have I had with people who, sit, who tell me that they're called to go somewhere and yet they lack the character, they lack the godliness, and, and their calling they are taking as proof in and of itself. No, we need churches to protect that to examine the character of those sent, 
to examine the calling, the external calling. That's what these people at Antioch did. They laid their hands on them and sent them out. We need local churches to do that. There's no lone rangers in the gospel work. And I'll, I'll again tell you very straightly, I get really nervous when people want to be lone rangers in the gospel work. We're not interested in that. What church are you connected with? I don't want to hear about your missions agency. I want to hear about what church you're connected to, who you're accountable to, who are your pastors, who are your elders, who've actually, who's laid hands on you and said that you ought to be doing this. Those are the types of questions we're asking. We're not asking about your internal call. We're not asking about how you feel about yourself. I'm asking who, who's your church? Who sent you to do this work? Who verified you? Who, who examined you? protect the character and the external calling of those sin. And we need local churches to protect the results, to protect the results of the proclamation. This is what you see happen. There will be people who receive the good news. Where are they going to be connected? Often evangelistic work is done door to door ministry or evangelistic campaigns Think the Billy Graham crusade, right? Many people come forward and make a profession of faith, but where do they go after that? Where are they connected after that? They need to be a part of a local church where they can be grown, where they can be discipled, where they can be protected, where they can be nurtured, where they can thrive. We need local churches to protect the content, to protect the character and external calling, to verify the external calling of those being sent. And we need, God, we need local churches to protect the results of that proclamation Disciple those who receive the good news. The gospel is the fruit of a healthy church. The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, mission work. Also, secondly, so first it's the fruit of the healthy church. Secondly, the proclamation of the gospel will be opposed. It will be opposed. Opposition is to be expected. And, And you say, why? Because it goes back to what I just gave you in the content of the gospel. That is an offensive message. First of all, it involves a king. The gospel is the good news of the king. So the king has now put all the kings of men and the kingdoms of men on notice. There is a king who is the king of all. And so on that level, this is a very offensive message because his power and his authority rivals everyone's authority and power. He alone is the authority. So it's offensive on that level. It's also offensive because you're telling people they're sinful. This is not a message people want to hear. You're telling them that righteousness can only be found in Jesus, not in their own works. Essentially, you're telling them they're not good people. Now, to you and I, who have ears to hear, that message, I'm not a good person, we're like, yeah, I I knew that. I've known that my whole life. And I'm thankful somebody confirmed it for me. I'm thankful somebody gave me the answer. But when when somebody lives their whole life trying to construct their righteousness and this view of themselves and their reputation, and you're coming and telling them they're they're not righteous, they're sinful, this is horribly offensive to them. It's also offensive. It's offensive because it involves a king who rivals all kingly authorities. It's offensive because it's a message of sin It's also offensive because it's a message that calls to repentance. 
turning from themselves and from sin and from religion. You've met a lot of devoted people. What's interesting about Acts 13 and 14 is that it's the devoted people who oppose Paul. Devoted to what? Devoted to Judaism. These are not, these, these are not the people. These, these are religious people. They are devoted to Judaism, much like Paul was. Paul, before he was converted, was devoted, so devoted that he vehemently opposed those who proclaimed the gospel. They thought it was false teaching. These devoted ones are called to repentance, to leave their devotion to Judaism. That's unthinkable. This gospel message is a narrow message. And it is offensive. You should expect opposition because the message of the gospel is offensive to those who are not believing. Opposition is to be expected. But I want you to hear this as well. Opposition is to be expected because, as I said last week, you and I are engaged in a war, in a battle that is raging and has been raging between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This, this battle has been raging since the first pages of Scripture. And you and I are a part of this battle, are a part of this war. Now, we, we are victorious in and through Jesus. But this war and this battle is real. Imagine if you were engaged in World War II or in Vietnam, wars that many of you have read about, and you were commissioned to go into enemy territory. You were commissioned to go into enemy territory and, and you were sent out to accomplish some objective. That would be scary. Would you, would you expect opposition in that case? Oh, much opposition. You get that, don't you? Here, here's what's a little bit different about our situation. We have commi- been commissioned to go. We are commissioned to go into enemy territory. That's where we're going. And yet we're not called to go secretly. We're not sinning secretly. See, if you were going to go into, into Germany, uh, in German territory in World War II, you, you would go in with stealth. You wouldn't announce your coming, would you? You'd go in and you'd hide and you'd sneak and you'd, you'd try to get some information and get back across the lines as quickly as you could. That's not, that's not what we've been called to. We've been called to go into enemy territory and we've been called to announce our coming. To bring the gospel message with boldness, unashamedly. The enemy knows we're coming. And the enemy territory is full of enemy agents who want to do nothing but shut us up. Opposition should be expected. should not be surprising. So, so then I wonder, why don't we experience more opposition? We, we've kind of fallen into this trap of thinking that opposition is a negative thing. Oh, you, you could be opposed because you're a real jerk. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when we give the gospel, why would it surprise us that it is opposed? But I think often we, we go along to get along with people. We, we value 
the way they think of us and our reputation with them more than we value the proclamation of the gospel to them. And if we proclaim the gospel faithfully, we should expect opposition to that. We should expect, as Jesus told us, to be hated for that. Is Jesus worth us being hated for his sake? That's what he tells us. I, I, I want us to embrace our mission. We're not experiencing opposition because we've either lost or hidden the gospel in our lives. We've either lost it, we're not clear about the content of it, we've diluted it, we're, we're, we're practicing some level of syncretism ourselves where we're kind of going along with our crowd to get along with everybody. Listen, our mission is not to go along with people and get along with people. Often I think this, this mission to build a platform, oh, I'm just building a platform. You know, I'm establishing a friendship. I'm establishing a rapport with them. Yes, 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 that's all good. I'm not saying that's bad. But sometimes that building a platform to be able to speak into people's lives, that becomes the mission itself. And we, we forget that eventually we do have to proclaim the gospel. We can't just, we can't just be nice to people for a long time and hopefully they'll, hopefully they'll pick up on something. That's not our mission. We're building platforms so that, that we can speak the gospel with boldness and clarity. We're not experiencing opposition because we're not wanting to speak up. The proclamation of the gospel is the fruit of a healthy church. The proclamation of the gospel will be opposed. And real quickly, number three, the proclamation of the gospel will be received. The proclamation of the gospel will be Received. I want you to return back again to chapter 13, verse 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as, look at that, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In every place, in every nation, in every town, in every village, in every place, there are those who God has appointed to eternal life. And our responsibility is to go call them to repentance, to call them in essence, to call them home, to call them home to the one who has appointed them to eternal life, to call them to receive that eternal life through the Son King Jesus. That's our mission, to go and proclaim the gospel and in every place, I want you to hear the comfort of this, in every place there are those who have been appointed to eternal life. Sometimes, sometimes Calvinism or belief in the sovereignty of God is blamed for a lack of evangelism. Oh, those Calvinists aren't evangelists. Sadly, that can be true. People who talk about the sovereignty of God a lot aren't always the most active in evangelism. And that doesn't make sense to me. Because the sovereignty of God, a, a true belief in the sovereignty of God should be our fuel to proclaim the message. We know that it will be received. And if those who are not being called to eternal life reject it, we should expect that. That should be the expectation. But in every place... There are people who are being called and appointed to eternal life. 
Our responsibility is to call them to him who is calling them to himself. And that mission will not fail. It will not fail. Our belief in the sovereignty of God over salvation is what should propel us forward. And it's what should comfort us when people do reject the gospel. We know that God's doing a work and he's not doing that in everyone's life, but in those that he has appointed to eternal life. And then number four, the proclamation of the gospel is the fruit of healthy churches. The proclamation of the gospel will be opposed. The proclamation of the gospel will be received. And number four, the proclamation of the gospel is the seed of healthy churches. Come back to the church. It's the fruit of healthy churches, and it's also the seed. I want to call your attention to chapter 14. He goes back through all of these cities. He doesn't take the shortcut back to Antioch. He goes back through all these cities. And look what he does. after. Look what Paul and Barnabas do. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Tyconium, and to Antioch. And what do they do? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, those who had believed, those who were gathered together now in all these cities, strengthening their souls, exhorting them, or encouraging them to continue in the faith. Continue And declaring to them, verse 22 again, declaring or saying to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So so they're real with them. They come back through and they say, you're going to need strength. You're going to have to hold fast your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Through many tribulations, it's to be expected you will enter the kingdom of God. But then look at what they do. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they give a structure of leadership to these churches. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, Here's prayer and fasting again. We saw it at the very opening. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they go back through strengthening, encouraging, and telling them that through many trials, they will enter the kingdom of God, but they don't leave them on their own. They appoint leaders for them, spiritual leaders, who then can watch over them and shepherd them and take care of them. This is the concern of mission work. Concern of mission work isn't just to proclaim the gospel and leave and go somewhere else. Hopefully they figure it out. The hope of mission work, the hope of the proclamation of the gospel is to see churches started and churches nurtured and churches cared for. Why? So that they then can become footholds to launch out and proclaim the gospel in new regions. I, I don't know much about rock climbing. But if, you, if, you, if you're climbing, doing a rock climbing wall, you don't have these footholds, places you grab onto. Why? So that you can go to the next place. If you're scaling the, the face of a wall or face of a rock, 
You have someone who, who anchors in to that rock face so you can tether in. Why? So you can stay there? No. So you can go on to the next place. That's what the churches are. The churches are footholds. The churches are anchors for us to launch out and to go forward, to take the gospel to places it hasn't gone before. And that's what we're doing here. Did you know that you're part of a foothold? Our job isn't just to stay here. Our job is to go out, become that anchor, become that foothold to actually take the gospel to places that it hasn't gone before. There will be places that we have opportunity to take the gospel. You may, you may ask, well, why do we have three, four, five healthy churches in Spokane Valley? Listen, I'll take healthy churches on every corner. I'll take healthy churches on every corner of the city. Because from every single one of those places, there's a unique way and a unique opportunity to launch forth in gospel proclamation. Grace Christian Fellowship, Valley Bible, these other churches, New Hope Bible, these other churches are launching forth, taking the gospel out, and we are for them and we encourage them. We will be able to launch out and take the gospel to places that they're not going to be able to take it to. We, we simply can't do all the work ourselves. We're not, the only, we're, all, we're not the only foothold there is, right? But that's what we are. And we want to go forth taking that gospel. There's an invitation in this message, an invitation. And you'll notice with all the songs, we have this idea of come, come, come. The invitation, first of all, is for those of you who have never received the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God's rule being established in the name of his son, King. God is not ruling over your life. You are ruling your life. God is not your God. Something else is. Today, we are calling you to see Jesus, the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who himself took sin, died for sin, so that he could be raised again and offer forgiveness and righteousness so that you can stand right before God. But you must leave, turn from your sin, turn from your religion, turn from your self-righteousness and believe by faith in Jesus Christ and his work as your only hope of salvation. The invitation is for you to come and receive Jesus as Lord and King. And the invitation is for you, believers. The invitation is for you to come and participate in this mission to take the gospel to regions where it has not gone. We are, right after this, going to have a an equipping hour. Can you read that from all the way back there around the post? It's on evangelism because we want to be an evangelistic church. So we're going to be doing that in our equipping hour after the service. We invite all of you to come strengthen yourself, equip yourself for this work of evangelism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. We thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for what it shows us. The importance of local churches as footholds for the gospel proclamation and the ministry going forward for protecting the gospel, but also encouraging us with the reality that we will be opposed for our witness And yet there will always be people who are listening and receiving, being called because you appointed them to eternal life.
I pray that we would recommit ourselves, even this morning, all of us as believers, we would recommit ourselves to this mission that we would not be content just being a church that exists in Spokane Valley, but that we would take a, a serious look in the mirror this morning and ask ourselves, why? Why are we not being bolder with the gospel? What have we settled for? What are we content with? And I pray that you would bring appropriate conviction. I pray that you would bring encouragement. And I pray that you would give us boldness to speak the gospel. I pray for those who are here, Lord, and you know them, that are lost. They do not find or have not found this message compelling. They do not find the message of the gospel necessary. They are blinded by their sin. I pray that by your authority, by your power, you would uncover their eyes, show them their need, show them Jesus, his beauty, who he is, and that they would flee from their sin and self-righteousness, flee from their religion, what they're trusting in, that they would put all their hope and all their faith in Jesus, his work of death and resurrection as their only hope of salvation. Even now we pray for that in your name. Amen.